What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In the conservative justices' drive to curb federal regulators, they're considering overturning a 40-year-old precedent, which would mean a major legal shift that would crimp agency power over everything from workplace conditions and drug safety to climate change and cryptocurrency. Four of the conservative justices have previously signaled opposition to the Chevron Doctrine, which requires judges to defer to agencies when they offer a reasonable interpretation of an ambiguous statute. Here's Justice Neil Gorsuch. Does the judge abdicate that responsibility and say automatically whatever the agency says wins? But the three liberal justices argued against the shift of power to judges, emphasizing that agencies have expertise that judges don't have. Here's Justice Elena Kagan. You know, the best option is to listen carefully and to uh, defer if it's reasonable and if it's consistent with everything that we know that Congress has said, to defer to people who actually know things about these things. But to, you know, to people who understand the way particular questions fit within a broader statutory and regulatory scheme. The decision may depend on the votes of Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who voiced concern about a legal upheaval if Chevron is reversed, alluding to the more than 15,000 court cases that have cited Chevron. So maybe nothing happens immediately to those cases, but isn't the door then open for litigants to come back and say, well, stationary source really means X or, you know, broadband or whatever the specific term was in in brand X. So isn't it inviting a flood of litigation, even if for the moment those holdings stay intact? In the three and a half hours of oral arguments, there was very little discussion about the facts of the two cases, where fishermen are challenging a National Marine Fisheries Service rule that herring fishermen pay for the government monitors who track their fish intake, a regulation that was suspended last year. Joining me is constitutional law expert Harold Krant, a professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law. The Chevron Doctrine. By the way, championed by conservatives when it was established in a case that cut back on regulations, but now vilified by them. Tell us how it's used in practice, what the practical application is. The practical application of Chevron is is enormous. It allows a structured way for courts to determine whether to uphold agency interpretations of statutes, whether it's in rulemaking or in a case in adjudication. And so if the statute is vague, let's say a reasonable size for a truck, or in the famous case of Chevron itself, what's a stationary source, a court will have to decide whether Congress has been clear. And if Congress has been clear, that's the end of the matter and the court's interpretation will hold. The agency can appeal if it disagrees up to the Supreme Court. But in many cases, the courts are left with doubt. I mean, what is a reasonable investigation? What is an adequate measure? And they're not certain how to interpret it. And so then the court will defer to any kind of reasonable agency interpretation. 
that, of course, gives agencies more power and it gives agencies the ability to change their interpretation of regulations as social or political conditions evolve. And that has enormous significance both for business and for individuals regulated by the government. Many of the conservative justices have expressed opposition to Chevron. Why are they so opposed to Chevron? Justices are opposed, I think, for two different reasons. The first is, in all other contexts, judges make the final call as to what Congress meant in passing statutes. So if there's ambiguity, courts have the final say. That's what courts do, and courts think that they're better at it, and that's their special function. So under Chevron, the courts have to share this special function with agencies who they view as sort of unelected bureaucrats or politicians. So that's an affront to judicial respect. I think that's one argument. The other argument or reason is that this particular court is very skeptical of administrative agencies and administrative agencies' power. They love presidential power, but they don't like the power of the bureaucrats beneath them. And there's no question but that agencies under both Republican and Democratic administration have more authority and more influence if the Chevron doctrine is applied accurately. The liberal justices defended Chevron and the status quo. Justice Elena Kagan gave some practical examples, like should courts defer to an agency's expertise as to whether a cholesterol-lowering product should be classified as a dietary supplement or a drug? So, I mean, those arguments seem to make sense when you consider, you know, on the ground level, what agencies are deciding. In addition to that, there's long been a debate about what Congress intends. There's been studies that suggest that Congress is comfortable with Chevron, understands Chevron, and indeed would want the agency to fill in statutory gaps or clarify statutory language as opposed to the court. Why? Because agencies are seen as Congress's partner in trying to you know, look at safe drug policy or try to understand immigration policy or try to understand how to regulate the airway. So Congress indeed would prefer or intend for courts to help them interstitially by trying to clarify ambiguous language as opposed to the court, which doesn't have the same kind of expertise, same kind of flexibility in trying to figure out what statutes mean. So viewed from that perspective, Chevron is indeed consistent with separation of powers. Conservative justices like Antonin Scalia used to applaud it because it reflects Congress's intent that the two entities, Congress and the agencies, are really working together to accomplish a similar mission. Did it seem like there were four justices, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh and Samuel Alito, who were ready to completely jettison Chevron? My guess would be that the four justices you mentioned were clearly opposed to Chevron, but it's not clear whether there is a majority of justices who want to overturn Chevron outright, whereas Justice Barrett and Chief Justice Roberts were more on the fence in terms of what kind of response the court should take, should the court go all the way and overrule Chevron, or should they just limit Chevron even further than previously limited by the major question doctrine? And as was definitely remarked upon in oral argument, if Chevron is overturned, that would cause a great deal of instability, because the question would then be, what about all these cases have been decided in reliance upon Chevron? Does that mean that they will have to be reopened to determine whether the courts want to rethink what is the correct interpretation to give to the statute that was challenged. Yeah, and Barrett expressed concerns about the disruptive consequences of overturning the precedent. Yeah, 
So one of the things that litigators don't remember today is what life was like before Chevron. And the problem that arises is when the agency makes an interpretation, it can be challenged in many different circuits around the country. And then oftentimes, different district court judges will interpret ambiguous statutory language differently. And so you will have the prospect again, if Chevron is overturned, of having a disarray, seven different or three different interpretations of one statute that are enforced in different circuits. And that makes planning and makes even stability for businesses very difficult. That's the kind of cacophony that was discussed in oral argument. And I think it's very real. It happened before Chevron. And one of the advantages with Chevron was trying to get a uniformity of approach to limit the splits among the circuits and the delay in trying to get an interpretation you know, approved. And just noting that in these cases, both the D.C. Circuit and the First Circuit sided with the federal government, affirming lower court decisions. So this wasn't a case where the justices had to take it. It was a case where four of the justices, and I think we probably know which four, took it to change things up, right? I think so. And what's intriguing about the case, too, is this was a policy that was adopted by the Trump administration and defended by the Biden administration, you know, which suggests that it's a good vehicle for Chevron because it's not a case that looks more Republican or looks more Democratic. This just looks governmental. And justices did have an interesting comment that, you know, just like if we get rid of Chevron, businesses will be advantaged, but at the same time, so may immigrants, veterans, and social security claimants, because all those individuals who litigate against the government have the burden of trying to persuade a court that the statutory language has been interpreted incorrectly by the agency. But they can do that more readily if Chevron doesn't exist, because otherwise they have to overcome the presumption that the agency's interpretation is correct. And if Chevron were totally overturned, then at least theoretically, and it would be true in some cases, that individuals would have more advantage in litigating against the government. But of course, at the same time, so will businesses. This is one of the most important cases of the term. Thanks so much, Hal. That's Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago-Kent College of Law. Coming up next, a judge grounds the JetBlue spirit merger. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. The proposed merger of JetBlue Airways and Spirit Airlines won't be getting off the ground. A federal judge blocked the $3.8 billion deal, saying it would hurt competition and travelers who rely on Spirit's low fares. While the decision means JetBlue will continue to be relegated to second-tier status behind the industry's big four carriers, the consequences for Spirit may be dire. Joining me is Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. Just how big a win is this for the Biden administration, which has been aggressive in antitrust enforcement? 
You know, I guess I would classify it as a big win on the M&A challenge front. But in terms of this specific case, I don't necessarily see it as surprising or a big win because this just seemed like an anti-competitive deal from the beginning, and it seemed like it should have been an easy case for the Department of Justice to win. So it's not a great feat, in other words, that they succeeded in court. But just generally, I think, in stopping any kind of consolidation and in kind of furthering the aggressive push to stop consolidation to stop a lot of deals, in that way, it's a big win. So why did the judge decide against the merger? You know, I think what this really came down to is the fact that there are flights that Spirit flies where JetBlue doesn't. So it's odd because most deals will come down to where they compete. But I think this came down to where they do not compete because JetBlue was very clear about plans to take those Spirit flights, retrofit the planes to the JetBlue model, and probably therefore raise the fares and lower capacity because the seats would be bigger and there would be fewer passengers. And for those routes, there's no way from an antitrust perspective that you can fix those higher prices. You know, for routes where they compete, they could sell the route to Allegiant or to Frontier that might continue to compete as a very low, you know, unbundled fare option. But now what you're doing is taking Spirit, which is considered an ultra-low-cost carrier and offers these very low unbundled fares. You're taking them out of the market for certain routes altogether. And there are absolutely consumers that depended on those low fares for those particular routes, and they would be hurt by this deal. And that's what the judge ultimately decided. So does this mean then that JetBlue will continue to be at a disadvantage to the four biggest airlines, pricing power and bigger fleets with no real path to grow? You know, I guess it does. And JetBlue argued, look, we need to combine with Spirit in order to grow. That's really the only way nowadays to grow as an airline. And if we grow, we can compete more vigorously against the legacy airlines like Delta, United, American, and Southwest. And that would be a good thing for consumers. That's pro-competitive. And the judge actually agreed with that, that this would help JetBlue if it could combine with Spirit, help it to grow, increase its map and better compete with some of the bigger airlines. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to overcome the harm to the consumers that I just talked about. And I think that's why, in a way, yes, the decision does tend to relegate JetBlue to its position sort of as a second tier. But one of the things that happened here, June, that was pretty effective is that what the Department of Justice argued is that, look, in this kind of second tier place that JetBlue sits now, it's kind of a maverick, right? It does something called the JetBlue effect. It really competes hard against the legacy airlines. And when it enters a route or the routes it's in, it forces these airlines to bring down their prices. And what they argued is, look, if they buy Spirit, they're telling you they'll better compete against the legacies. But in fact, they're really just going to become just like one of them. They're going to be bigger. They're going to be in a position that's more similar to the legacy airlines. They're going to take on a huge amount of debt from buying Spirit, and they're going to need to keep their prices up. So instead of actually continuing to exert this competitive pressure, they just become like the legacies and they increase their prices. The market appeared to like the news for JetBlue. JetBlue's stock rose almost 5% after the news. Is that, you think, because the company won't have to shell out billions of dollars and be saddled with a discount carrier? I think so. I mean, first, it was a very large amount of debt they would have taken on to finish this acquisition. That's the first thing. Their debt-debt ratio would have been much worse than it's been in the past. And they themselves aren't really doing all that well right now. You know, all the airlines are struggling a little bit with air traffic controller shortages and airline shortages, and there's some engine problems for some planes. And, you know, everybody's recovering after COVID. And then at the same time, 
what they're paying for Spirit now seems like an overpayment given what Spirit is worth today. So I think many analysts actually saw getting out of this deal as a good thing for JetBlue. For Spirit, not so much. Its shares were cut in half Tuesday in their worst loss ever. And if Spirit doesn't survive, doesn't that mean the judge's analysis was wrong or at least was not prescient? Well, I think what happened here is that Spirit's lawyers could have made a more full-throated flailing firm or failing firm defense. Now, within the guidelines that the agencies use to assess a deal, there is a defense to an otherwise anti-competitive deal called a failing firm defense or a flailing firm defense. And it was sort of suggested in trial that Spirit's not doing well They're struggling financially. They don't expect to make money next year. They don't know when they'll be in a better financial position going forward. And some of the issues they're having were outlined. And the judge said, look, you know, they didn't really meet the elements they need to meet. Legal cases have set out the precedent, set out what has to be proven in order to establish that defense. And the companies just didn't do it. They didn't meet that defense. And that's why the judge rejected it. And I sat through most of the trial, and I tend to agree. I don't think that they provided the evidence they needed to provide that would have allowed the judge to say, okay, I'll let an otherwise anti-competitive deal go forward because of the fact that spirit might actually go under if we don't allow the deal to close. In a joint statement, JetBlue and Spirit said they're evaluating their next steps as part of the legal process. So that means will they appeal or won't they appeal? Exactly. And what do you think about their chances on appeal? You know, I think their chances aren't great. And it's because this was really a question of interpreting the evidence, the testimony by the experts and the documents, and ultimately deciding which arguments were stronger and more valid than others. And that kind of a decision is given deference by an appellate panel because it needs to be shown that it was clearly erroneous. And that's hard to meet. So I do think an appeal would probably be an uphill climb for the airlines. And time is a little bit tight, too, because it could take five to six months let's say, from notice of appeal to decision, and they do have a merger end date of July 24th. So the timing's a little tight there, too. Could this ruling spell trouble for JetBlue's rival, Alaska Airlines, and its acquisition of Hawaiian? You know, I may be in the minority here, (laughs) but (laughs) I, I don't actually think it makes any difference, and I'll tell you why. Because I always thought that that deal would probably get challenged by the DOJ. They're just simply think that the airline industry is already too consolidated. And if they go in with that position, they may be more interested in trying to challenge this deal in court than allowing it to go through. So I've always thought that there was a chance of that. I think that that deal is much easier to fix than this deal is, because really that's just a straightforward combination of two competitors that overlap for, I understand, a pretty small number of routes overall. And then they can divest those routes to other carriers, which is generally the way airline mergers have been remediated in the past. And I think that if they can divest a sufficient number of routes to the right buyers, it seems to me they have a very good chance of winning in court. With JetBlue and Spirit, you had this whole other problem of these routes where they didn't compete, where it was only Spirit flying the route, but it was now going to become JetBlue and the prices were going to go up. So they had a different problem than will exist with the Hawaiian-Alaska combination. This is the second time in less than a year that JetBlue has lost a federal antitrust challenge. Is it time to just give up? (laughs) 
would have said it was time to give up before they entered the merger <laughs> agreement with Spirit. I don't think it's really any big surprise that that deal was challenged and that the DOJ won it in court. And I still wonder sometimes whether the whole reason for entering that agreement was just to stop Frontier and Spirit from merging. That's the very skeptical side of me, I guess. Lawyers are supposed to be skeptical, so. Exactly. I'm supposed to approach this skeptically. You know, I think it's pretty clear that they'd have a tough time buying up another airline. You know, at the very least, they would be challenged and have to fight it in court and try to win in court. Something they haven't been very good at so far. Thanks so much, Jen. That's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. Coming up next, Coinbase and the SEC face off in court. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. First I got pinky, then I got pinky. I got pinky and patty in the same week. What, Vanessa, catch something? Teeny beanie baby-itis. Now at McDonald's, your kids can get teeny beanie babies and a Happy Meal. Remember the Beanie Baby craze? The stuffed animals that became a sensation in the early 90s and then became collectibles. Well, surprisingly, Beanie Babies were part of the oral arguments in a federal case that's key to the SEC's goal of regulating the crypto market. Coinbase, the largest U.S. crypto exchange, is trying to get a judge to throw out the SEC's lawsuit, accusing it of selling unregistered securities. And its lawyers said buying cryptocurrency on an exchange is more like collecting Beanie Babies than investing in stocks or bonds. Joining me is securities law expert Robert Heim, a partner at Tartar, Krinsky and Drogan. Bob, what's at stake in this case? There's a lot at stake in this case, particularly for Coinbase as well as the broader crypto industry. Here, the judge has to decide whether the cryptocurrencies that traded on the Coinbase platform are securities under the statutory definition and the rules that the SEC enforces, or whether they come outside of that statutory framework. And it's really going to have a fundamental impact on whether crypto exchanges can operate in the United States and under what rules and how much regulation they're going to be subject to. So is the question whether crypto assets constitute an investment contract or something else? Yes. Under the statute, which was enacted in 1933, so going back a long time, there's a definition of securities, and one of the categories is called an investment contract. And that term is designed to be almost a catch-all within the statute because it specifically says stocks and bonds, and then it says investment contracts. So the litigation that the SEC brought against Coinbase is really designed, and the judge has to decide whether the crypto assets that were trading on the Coinbase platform fell within this category called investment contracts. And Coinbase's entire argument is that on the secondary market, there really is no contract in place where purchasers of these digital assets and tokens would have some contractual right to profits from the blockchain or the company that the crypto relates to. 
And the SEC is arguing, well, that's too much of a specific, narrow definition, and that, generally speaking, the court should go off of what they seem to be the expectations of the people buying these tokens and whether or not they have an expectation of profit, regardless of whether it's in the form of a written contract or not. And why did Beanie Babies come up? Coinbase made an interesting analogy in court, compared the digital assets and the crypto to Beanie Babies, you know, the phenomena Mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s, and collectibles is a broader category. And Coinbase's point is that there's a lot of different things that people invest in with the expectation of a profit, including Beanie Babies, including baseball cards, and not all those things are securities. So just because someone has the expectation that one day their purchase will be more valuable in the future does not convert that over to a security. And the SEC seemed to have a little bit of a problem coming back from that argument because the SEC is taking a very broad view of what constitutes security and what comes under its jurisdiction. And I think those arguments from Coinbase were really resonating with the trial judge because she was concerned that she doesn't want to overly broaden the definition of uh, security and include these things like collectibles and other things that are clearly intended to be outside the statute. I was surprised that Beanie Babies came up in the oral arguments. And the judge really seemed to focus on the idea of collectibles. Well, it is a good analogy, and this is one of the centerpieces of Coinbase's argument, is that the SEC is taking an overly expansive view of its own jurisdiction and over the types of instruments it has regulatory authority over. And under our system, Congress has to pass a statute and delegate specific powers to the SEC of what it can and can't regulate. And Coinbase's whole argument is that, you know, these crypto assets are not covered in the statute and therefore the SEC has no ability to regulate them until Congress chooses to amend the statute. And so Coinbase brought up the example of collectibles and beanie babies and saying that once you go down the slippery slope of going outside of what really is defined in the statute, almost anything that people buy, like a collectible, could be a security. And the judge was particularly concerned about that because she was concerned about opening the doors to a lot more litigation and specifically mentioned class actions where these class action lawyers could seize on a ruling in the SEC's favor on this point and try to argue almost anything could be a security and start suing companies that create and promote collectibles. So tell me what you think of the SEC argument from Patrick Costello that securities differ from purchases of collectibles like baseball cards or Beanie Babies. When they buy this token, they're investing into the network behind it. One cannot be separated from the other. Well, I really don't think that the SEC's argument is all that meritorious in that particular point, because when you look at collectibles and you look at Beanie Babies, the people in the companies that create, for instance, the Beanie Babies, you know, they're very astute in terms of releasing special edition Beanie Babies or limiting the supply or having particular promotions. So it's not just like Beanie Babies took off on their own, so to speak. A lot of thought and marketing and other things that you could consider to be kind of an enterprise you know, were in place. So the SEC's attempt to distinguish a collectibles market from a securities market really wasn't persuasive in that instance. But I think the SEC's broader and stronger argument is that the Securities Act of 1933, even though it's old, has a lot of flexibility built into it and has been able to be adopted to new types of investment 
products over the years, like real estate investment trust and complex sorts of financing instruments. And the SEC's argument is that that was exactly what this act is designed to do, and that crypto fits within that sort of category of a new financial investment that it is comfortably within the concept of an investment contract. And do you agree with our Bloomberg Intelligence senior litigation analyst, Elliot Stein, who predicts the judge will back Coinbase and dismiss the SEC suit? Yeah, I do think that there's a very high likelihood of that happening. And I think what the judge could do is say that trading on the secondary market, like what happened on the Coinbase platform is not a security because people are trading among themselves and the blockchain companies don't get that money. They're just, you know, aftermarket purchasers that are buying and selling among themselves and still keeping those investor protections for when those tokens are initially issued, like, for instance, an initial coin offering. You know, those could be securities because the company is getting the money from that offering. They're using it to build out a platform. They're using it to make the product more valuable. So it's a much stronger case to say that that's a security than the aftermarket trading. And I think the other really good point that Coinbase brought up was that The SEC allowed Coinbase to go public just three years ago. So Coinbase filed their forms with the SEC, described the business model, the platform was operating, and the SEC approved the IPO three years ago. So how can the SEC come back three years later after approving the IPO and say, well, your business was an illegal enterprise, you know, all along going back to 2019 when you first started it, even though we approved it to be offered to the public in 2021. The question of whether digital tokens are securities has divided courts. So another Manhattan federal judge, Annalisa Torres, ruled in July that exchange sales of Ripple Labs token weren't subject to SEC jurisdiction, while Manhattan federal judge Jed Rakoff, I think he just sits a floor apart from her, that same month reached the opposite conclusion in the SEC's case against Terraform Labs. So how much influence will the decision here by Judge Polk have? Well, that's a really good point, June, because there are a lot of decisions coming out of the Manhattan Federal Court as well as other courts that are contradictory and judges taking different approaches. And the judge in the Coinbase case, whatever way she ultimately rules, is going to be one more decision in that mix. It's not going to be a definitive answer either way. And I suspect that at some point, either the appellate courts in New York or even the Supreme Court is going to have to issue a decision on this point because there have been contradictory rulings. But ideally, as the judge is pointing out, this is more an issue for Congress in terms of trying to pass a legislative framework for crypto that defines, you know, what people have to do, how to regulate it, which agency should be responsible for it. Because right now you have this SEC, you have the CFTC, which regulates commodities and other agencies at the state level. They're all kind of assert jurisdiction over crypto, and it's, it's very harmful for the industry and it's hindering innovation and development because there really is not a clear regulatory framework. So ideally, Congress would act, but I don't have high hopes for that in this political climate. Unfortunately, I have to agree with you there, Bob. Thanks so much. That's Robert Heim, a partner at Tartar, Krinsky & Drogan. Coming up next, Elon Musk's ultimatum to the Tesla board. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, 
and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more. So you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. All right. Uh, it's been an incredible year. Uh, the SpaceX team, I think, is... Uh, the best space team that has ever been assembled on the face of the Earth by far. There was applause for Elon Musk at SpaceX last week. It completed a record 96 missions to space last year with usually positive headlines. Not so much so for the rest of Musk's life. With his divisive political and cultural comments, his drug use reported by the Wall Street Journal, and his focus split as he continues to run SpaceX, X-Corp, Twitter, and other ventures in addition to Tesla. Yet despite all this, Musk is leaning on Tesla's board to give him another massive stock award that would nearly double his current shares. In a series of posts on X, the Tesla chief executive says he would be, quote, uncomfortable growing Tesla to be a leader in AI and robotics without having 25% control. And then the not-so-veiled threat Unless that is the case, I would prefer to build products outside of Tesla. Joining me is business law professor Eric Talley of Columbia Law School. Eric, is this a real threat? It's really hard to tell. And first of all, I guess it's kind of interesting that Elon Musk decided to take his case for a raise, I guess. Not to the Tesla board, but to the viewers of his X slash Twitter feed to essentially make his case in the court of public opinion, which is kind of a bizarre thing. Now, it may well be the case that Mr. Musk has already put forward this request and not having it received as well as he would want it. But it's kind of an interesting thing to decide, you know, he's going to crowdsource people's opinions about whether he should have his ownership stake increased to 25%. Now, the guy is clearly an iconoclast who has a huge following all over the place. Some of the following follows him into the stock markets as well. So I think if you're sitting on the board of Tesla, you probably don't want Elon Musk becoming sour and sort of unhappy about his situation at Tesla. You know, by the same token, there's a real sense in which the types of reasons that Mr. Musk gave in his fairly long tweet, they don't really quite pass the smell test. The main one that he gave was that he needs that level of control so that he has enough influence and power to help direct things at Tesla. He's only sitting at 13% now, which, by the way, is an amount that he brought himself down to, having shed a bunch of his Tesla shares so that he could afford his Twitter acquisition. And he doesn't feel like he has the influence he wants. And I don't really know of anyone who actually believes that. You know, it's obvious to me that most retail investors, and almost certainly that board, is hanging on every single word that Elon Musk says. So to claim that, you know, if I don't have 25%, I'm not going to have enough influence, it just doesn't add up to me. Is this a great time to be pressuring Tesla with the car maker off to the worst start to any year it's been a public company? Yeah, how do I put this deftly? This is a terrible time to be <laughs> pressuring Tesla. But, you know, if anyone could do it, possibly it is Mr. Musk. First and foremost, realize that everyone like myself who teaches corporate law has been sitting and waiting for a decision involving Mr. Musk's own compensation package yes. that was awarded to him five and a half years ago that ended up paying him almost $60 billion worth of Tesla stock. We don't know how that decision is going to come out of Chancellor McCormick's chambers. Suppose she comes back 
second, she says, yeah, the shareholders have a point here. That may mean that the cash flows have to go in the reverse. He's got to give back some of the value he's already been paid or shares that he's received. So it's already kind of a sketchy time to be saying, oh, let's just reload this same package or maybe even a richer package when we don't even know what the legal status of the existing one was going to be. Second, one of the things that that has become clear is that the electric vehicle space is both getting crowded by new entrants and foreign competition. And, you know, it's kind of an inflection point about how heavily people are going to be diving into additional purchases of electric vehicles. That's going to make Tesla probably face even more of an uphill battle. So you've got this CEO who's saying, I want you to basically double my stake in the company or else I'm going to start directing business outside of Tesla. It's not a great look and it's not a great moment for that to happen. Thanks, Eric. That's Professor Eric Talley of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing and listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.